Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that this is your word. It is a fresh word. It may be an old word, but it is new every morning. And so, Lord, as we've gathered here this morning, would you refresh us? Would you renew us? Lord, would you be delighted to transform us this morning as we sit underneath your word and as we hear our blessed Savior speak to his people? Lord, would you by your spirit speak to us from this wonderful life-giving word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In honor of this life-giving word, I would ask that you would stand with me as we read this morning together. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Yes, guys, for those of you that are astute with this passage, you realize that I'm not covering it all this week. There's no way. Your, your job is too great. It's too large. So while the women get a sermon, you get at least two. <laughs> Maybe part of the reason why this is too is that just like Paul as a man, we see more clearly into our own shortcomings and the realities of where we are called as the heads of families as the husbands of wives where our responsibilities are great and large. I want to read to you this morning and if you'd like to turn there it's going to be a lengthy passage Ezekiel 16 1 through 14. I'm going to use this as our introduction and I'm going to use it for a reason because I really do believe that as Paul considers Christ in the church this passage of Scripture is very largely in his mind, and I think it would do as well to consider what is on Paul's mind so we might understand how he's applying it into Ephesus' life and as well as our own. Ezekiel 16, beginning in verse 1. Again the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say... Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you, to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but were cast out, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Now you might think in your mind, why does Paul have this in mind? Well, remember back to Ephesians chapter 1. Remember back to Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lost. You were helpless. You were hopeless out in the wilderness. And then in verse 6 it says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. 
When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord your God. There's a whole lot. We could just take that passage and go for days. We're looking at Ephesians 5. But this is the full measure of what Paul is considering as he thinks about how Christ thinks about the church. And somehow... That applies to us as husbands, and hopefully we will begin to unpack that. The first thing I want us to look at, you can hold your place in Ezekiel, but I want you to go back to Ephesians 5. As we consider now what Paul is saying to us, here in this passage, as we see in verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives. This means, at least as best as I can tell it, that there is a calling And that's our first point, the call. There is a calling that a man has when he wants to marry a woman. He's called to love her. Understand, just like I said last week, there's nobody in this room that has to marry somebody. It is something that you decide to do. It is a calling, but it is a calling that you are fully complicit with. You say, I long to unite myself to this other human being. And last week we talked about women doing that and the need to be careful. The need to protect your heart as you give your heart to a man. That you need to be thoughtful about that and you need to consider that because of all that Christ calls you to do. And this week I would say no less, in fact even more so, a man ought to give strong consideration as he enters into marriage. Now I want to say this on a couple of fronts because what I don't want to see happening is what I often find is that men will take what I'm saying right now and their fear of commitment and their fear of everything else on the planet and what they basically do is they run off down a path that I did not just tell you to run down. I didn't tell you to use the strong realities of marriage as a justification for toying with girls' emotions, which is often what happens when you enter into a relationship of some kind of dating and you're never willing to make a commitment. That is not what I'm suggesting here. I'm saying that maybe what you need to be doing is, first of all, considering what God has called you to, consider the realities of what you've been called to as a husband, which we're doing this morning, and then as you begin to look for a mate, you go in with the realities of what you're called to and what is necessary to fulfill that calling. So I want you to very much strongly consider the fact that while marriage is a normative thing, it is not a casual thing. 
And we would do well to remember that because it is shocking to me. And if it's not to you, I wish it would be. Not shocking in the sense that I'm, oh my word, Christians are such vile sinners. Not shocking that way. Just shocking in the sense of just how tragic it is that the church actually leads the nation in divorce. It's just, it ought to bother us to some degree that the evangelical community actually is not just keeping pace at this point, but actually is ahead of the culture at large in getting divorced. And part of why I believe that is is because we have begun to treat marriage as this casual thing. It's this thing that produces happiness. And when happiness, at least as we define it, doesn't happen, we're done with it. What we need to come to understand is that love that we're talking about here is not love that pursues itself. The call is to pursue another, not to pursue self. And as we begin to look at that and see that, we start to see that Paul is urging us to remember that just like a woman's submission, a man's love is something he's called to do. You could even go so far as to say, if you get married, you're commanded to love your wife. But Paul uses language in such a way that says you're supposed to be willing. This is not something you do out of compulsion. In this sense, it's just like what Paul says to elders. Elders should not become elders out of compulsion. They feel obligated. I've got to do this duty. But rather, you should strive to have a heart that says I lovingly willingly, delightedly come to love this woman that God has given me. I've heard it said in Genesis chapter one or chapter two when God brings Adam Eve, and you know, I'm sure you've probably heard guys say, you know, he goes, Whoa man, and that's and he was like, Oh wow, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. There's a whole lot more than just the physical reality going on there. And we won't take a whole lot of time, but realize Paul has rooted this also in the created order. And what I want you to realize is this calling is a calling which says, somehow I need to be able to look at a woman and at least strive to look at her just like Adam looked at Eve when he looked at her and said, this woman is everything I was needing. This person fills up all the empty cavities of my person and makes me whole. This person was made to fit me. And that's what Adam was looking at. It wasn't just a physical thing, although it wasn't less than that. It was the whole package of who this woman was. And so we see that men are not to go into a marriage going, I have to love this woman if I'm going to marry her. It has to be something that we begin to love and long to do. We need to pray that God would give us that heart. And as we look at this passage, we'll begin to see why that's not some simple thing. Husbands are called to love a sinner, not a perfect woman. Unlike Adam, we do not have a woman that we meet who fits us every way perfectly. Now, hopefully last week, ladies, you you heard it loud and clear Your husband doesn't fit you perfectly either. His armor is tarnished. 
That old horse may have one time been a charger, but when you got hold of him, it had turned into a nag. You know, Cinderella is a fairy tale. Remember that. Um, some, of these, some of these guys may be riding things that look more like mice than they do like white chargers. And the point I want you to think about is this. This is the reality we come into. When you marry a woman, it should not shock you. It should not be, what's going on? She sins. She doesn't do it perfectly. She doesn't read my mind. And I might say on the side, because maybe sometimes with wives it's a little more difficult, we don't read yours either. In fact, you do a lot better at reading ours than we ever will do at reading yours. But the point is, is that men are to love their wives because their wives are sinners. Love is not something that waits on the wife to get her act together and then you give her her due portion. We just got a new puppy yesterday. It hasn't come home to our house yet, and you can pray for us in that regard, but we have entered once again into the world of canine ownership for the second time. One of the things they tell you to do with little dogs is you get them, and they were telling us when we brought him home that we need to basically buy this huge bag of liver treats. And that basically we begin to sit the dog down and look him in the eye and get him to look at us in the eye and get about five seconds of contact, and then you give him the liver treat. And you keep stretching that out until, you know, you hopefully you can get it to 10 seconds and 20 seconds and 30 seconds to where eventually you can get this dog trained to where he'll sit there for a long period of time waiting on you to give him a treat. I'm afraid that some men think in their calling that their calling is to get their wives to learn how to sit, metaphorically speaking, for long periods of time, well-trained, well-behaved, Glamour queens who, of course, do it all perfectly. They are incredible cooks. I mean, haven't you read the Proverbs 31 woman? Come on. The tragedy is, for many men, is they forget, you married a sinner. We'll talk about the other side of that punchline in a minute, but I want you just to come into that reality. You married an imperfect being who desperately needs love. Desperately needs love. She was made for it. She craves it. And you entered into a relationship and said, I agree to that. Husbands are called to love their wives. The last thing I want to say before we go, that, that what that means in some real sense is if wives, like we talked about last week, are to make their homes a place of grace and a place of peace, men are supposed to make their homes a place that is secure and a place that is foundationally sure or steady. In other words, the foundation is solid and the walls will hold. That's what men are supposed to do in their homes. Their wives and children are, as much as it depends on you, you are to strive to give your family secure walls and a strong foundation. Now we'll talk about what that looks like in its entirety in a few minutes, but that is your calling. Your calling is to provide that for your wives. Now, the challenge. 
Here's the challenge. Husbands are called to love like Christ. You know, if we could have just left that, Paul would have just left that part out. We could have, you know, guys, we could have kind of gotten out. We could have said, yeah, this is probably doable. I mean, you know, love her, care for her, help her out, vacuum every once in a while, clean the dishes. You know, I, can, I got that covered. I can help her out with that. I can bathe the kids and, you know, I can read them some bedtime stories. And, okay, that's, that's cool. I've got that covered. But like Christ, love the church. Well, you are going to find yourself at a deficit. And if you don't, did you not read the Bible? You're supposed to love the church like Christ loved, or you're supposed to love your wife like Christ loves the church? The same way. Like. A love like His. And if you don't see that as a challenge, you're not really hearing it loudly. Christ loved the church without looking for anything from her. I want you to think about that. Christ looked at the church and said, you're an orphan left out in the field covered with blood and you were abhorred and despised and no one gave a rip about you. And I came by and said, live. Live. Men, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. You do not walk into a marriage saying, okay, this woman obviously brings this pedigree, a pretty good amount of cash flow when her parents die. Um, that's not what you do. You look at a woman and say, even if she brings me nothing, I will love her. Now, I just got news for you. If you thought submission was hard, try that one on for size. Because husbands, you are to love your wife, expecting nothing from her. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I fail at that daily. Daily. Now that may diminish me in some of your eyes as a pa the pastor is failing to love his wife. Like Yes, regularly. Just ask Jane anytime you want to. I'm sure she could tell you if she wanted to all the ways. Oh, how I failed to love thee. Let me count the ways. <laughs> the reality is that if you take it seriously, we do come with expectations. We do get married because we think this person somehow is going to help me. And it's not that that's completely wrong because the woman was made to be a helper. That's in fact what Ezer means in the Old Testament. Helper. But the reality is, is that Christ did not come looking for the church to give Him help. He came with a love that says, you have nothing to give me. And I love you. And so the challenge is for us to love like that. The very language then of Ephesians here is monergistic, and that's just a big word for saying it's all God. The love that Christ has shown the church is all His. You did absolutely nothing to get it, to deserve it. You didn't bring anything to the table. And even if you had something to bring, He wasn't looking for it. You didn't add anything to it. It's all of God. 
So, we see then in this passage that Christ gave his life for the church. And then we begin to look at verse 26, and he begins to tell us why he did that. And he says that he might sanctify her. The idea here is that he called the church out and he set her apart. He said, for you and you only do I have love and affection. And do you see the correlation to our marriage? And do you once again see where you fail as a man? Any man in here who lives under the delusion that 24-7, 52 weeks out of the year, 365 days out of the year, that your affections are always for this blessed creature that God caused to be blinded in that moment when you said, will you? <laughs> you do not fulfill that command. You do not have all your affections for her all the time. You fail. But do you see that what we're being told here is that Christ said, I have sanctified her. I set her apart. I took the church and said, I look nothing. I look for her to give me nothing. And I say, my affections are yours and yours alone. Now you realize you can twist that and pervert that and say, well, Jesus is only for his people. You know, salvation's only for this particular group of people. It's exclusive. It's, you know, they're just keeping everybody out. Do you understand how Paul will have nothing to do with that kind of thinking? That's not what he's saying. He's saying that Christ said, I choose you to love and cherish and care for, and you only. To have some bastardized view of that is wrong. We need to see the beauty of what it is for Christ to say, you wretches, you deservers of hell and damnation, I have come to give my life for you to set you apart. And not only does He set us apart, but even as we read in Ezekiel, we hear that laying in our own blood, our own filth, He washes us. He cleanses us. He makes us clean. He anoints our heads with oil. And the way that Paul uses that is to say this. He says that not only did he sanctify her or set her apart, but having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And the idea there is he brings water and he anoints her with the gospel and with the means of grace. Now, I don't have time to go into this, but we could have a long treatise. And there are plenty of commentaries you could read that have whole pages dedicated to discussing baptism in light of this passage and it certainly has a lot to say about that but right now I want to talk to you about being a husband but the reality is is that Christ washes us he cleanses us he takes the good news of the gospel and anoints us with it so that we are people who are set apart we are people who believe we are people who see the realities of what we needed saving from and the glories of what we've been saved into. So He washes us with the Word. The idea here then is this, that the church could not cleanse herself. She could not make herself worthy. Do you see that? Do you see that you couldn't do anything? And Paul's driving home this point that, do you understand, members of the church, that you can't do anything? to make yourself worthy, to cleanse yourself. It's all of Christ. 
The next thing he did was to display his wife, the church, to himself in all her splendor. And I want you to notice this, men. So that he might, verse 27, present the church to himself in splendor. Some of your translation may might present her in glory. I think it's really interesting that it says there himself. He did it for himself. Now, before I talk about why he did it that way, I do want to come back and say this. Men, this means you don't marry a woman to be a trophy. Your woman may be the most gorgeous thing, or as the kids say a lot of times, that, that woman's a hottie. Your, your wife may be a hottie. Praise Jesus. But she's your hottie. She's not every guy at the swimming pool's hottie. She's not every guy in the mall's hottie. You get what I'm saying? Jesus set the woman, the church, apart to be his bride, his beauty. His gorgeous woman. And that's not to say that others won't see it. But do you understand the point? The point is, He made her beautiful for Himself. So that He might be enraptured by, his, by her love. That He might see her beauty. That He might see her without spot and wrinkle. He did it. For himself. And I think there's something very strong there for how we should view our wives. She is ours and no others. We are to put her as the one, the object of our affection. And if you basically treat your wife in another kind of way, don't be shocked that your mind is running to all other kinds of people that are out on display. If your affection is for her and her only, and your desire and your delight is to make her beautiful and to dress her and to clothe her. And see, what I would also say to you is this is a call then to say, there's nothing wrong with your wife saying, I'd like a new dress. I'd like a new skirt. I'd like a new shirt. I'd like a new pair of shoes. There's nothing wrong with your wife wearing earrings. Did you hear it in Ezekiel? There's nothing wrong, women, with having a nose ring. God gave Israel a nose ring. I'm not necessarily saying any of this is prescriptive, but do you hear, do you hear what's being said there that God loved Israel so much that He clothed her in regalia? And sometimes we can become so spiritually minded that we basically expect our wives to be these kind of people that live under this tyranny of, well, you don't need a new dress. I mean, think about all the people that are going to hell in Ethiopia. The point is, is that maybe you need to play a less round of golf. You need to sacrifice something in your own financial portfolio so that you can care about the people dying in Ethiopia and get your wife a new dress. That's what's really being said here. If you really want to hear what's being said here is, it's not about you figuring out how your wife gets the leftovers. Your wife comes first. And you get it. The Jetsons have it right in some ways. For those of you that grew up watching the Jetsons, you know when you're hearing Jane, his wife, and, and he's basically going to give her her little $20 to go to the mall, and she basically takes the whole wallet and leaves him with the 20 or whatever it is in space-age monetary values. There's a sense in which she shouldn't have had to take it. You should have given it to her. That's the point. What did Christ not give His church? He gave her everything, including His life. And we as men 
can not do anything less. That's our call. To love our wives first. She's preeminent. Before our hobbies, before anything else in our lives, she comes first. The best thing my dad ever told me at one point in my life when I was having problems, and he was remarried to my stepmother. And I was having a hard time with my dad being remarried and my mother being remarried. And my dad looked me straight in the eye and said this. He goes, I didn't stay faithful to your mother. And that was wrong. But you will not come between me not that I caused, I was a little kid. I was three when my parents got divorced. So I wasn't, he wasn't saying that either. Just keep my dad off the hook. But what my dad did say was this, because he was right on. He said, you will leave before she does. She is first. I love you. I care about you. I will do anything I can to see you grow up and be a wise and healthy young man. But you are not first in this house. My wife is. And that's the same thing my children have been told. I love you. I care about you. You are our treasures. You are the expression of your mother and my love. But you're not first. And you never will be. Your mother is the most important person in this house. And that's what Jesus says to His church. She's first. She's the person of preeminence. That's how He loves her. The last thing that I want us to see is that to make her holy and blameless, to make her without spot and wrinkle, the idea here is this. The church could not beautify herself. The church can't keep herself from getting old. The church can't keep herself from being tarnished. But Jesus can. When Jesus gives His gifts, the church stays beautiful and fresh, just like the first day He saw her. She doesn't age. She presses on in beauty. Now, men, that's something you can't do. I don't care what the latest technology is, how much retox, Botox, whatever other kind of interesting stuff. I, I say retox because some people that have had a lot of Botox, they, they don't look like they're normal anymore. They look like they, their, their faces have been retarded in some way. They're, they're, it's retox. It's just it's, there's something wrong there. The idea here is that though the church may fail, the church may lapse, the church may not live out perfectly, guess what, men? Your wife won't either. You are to continue to press forward with the call, and that is to see her at the end of the day holy and blameless. Why? Because that's what Jesus' determination is for her and for the church. Okay, we've looked at that, and that is the bulk of what I want us to see here this morning is the idea here is that Christ is zealous for the church because He is determined to bring glory to Himself. And the way He does it is by glorifying and delighting in the church. And see, that's the great mystery. Christ does everything for the church and in doing so, he brings glory to Himself. And I want to say this to you men. There are very few women, I'm sure they're out there, I'm sure there are women out there who, who can resist this, but I know very few women that if a man really has this kind of attitude towards her, that she can continue to go, I ain't doing jack squat for that clown. I'm not saying you do it perfectly. I'm saying if your heart really is for her, 
she will not continue to pursue an obstinate, rebellious way. And see, isn't that what you're after? Isn't what you're after is somebody who lovingly, caringly, submissively follows your lead? Do you understand that that's exactly what Christ has done for us? Could Christ come into our presence right now and say, everybody on your knees? In fact, if he did come into our presence, everyone would be on their knees, whether he said it or not. But my point is that that's not how he comes to us. He comes to us and says, do you see all this that I've done for you? Do you see what you were without me? Do you see what I have done for you? And that brings us to the third point. Okay, the call, the challenge. The third point is the cross. See, because what I didn't emphasize so much to begin with is I want to go back now to verse 25 and look at what's really being ultimately said there. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus went to the cross. And men, this is your hope. That Jesus went to the cross for you as part of the church. And the more you begin to see the realities of your failings, of your shortcomings, and you become a man who's able to say, I fail. You become a man that can go to your wife and say, I've screwed up here, here, and here. Would you please forgive me? That as you become a man who can face your failings, your shortcomings squarely in the eye, you begin to become a man who sees the glory of Christ, the realities of the forgiveness that He's offered to you. He died for her. He died for a prostitute. If you were to go on and read Ezekiel 16, I want you to think about this. You get to verse 14, and all of a sudden everything changes. In verse 15, what you get is this beautiful woman takes all her beauty and goes out and prostitutes it. And God says, you were such a foul prostitute that you did not merely go out and look for people to give you money. You actually paid them. What prostitute does that? A prostitute at least looks to get paid. But God says, your abominations were so horrific that you went out and paid other people so that you could prostitute yourself with them. Men, until you come to a place where you're able to say, that's me, that's my heart, that's what I'm like apart from Christ, you will never begin to understand the love of Christ for you. And to that degree, you will never be able to really take seriously the loving of your wife. Because until you become a man who realizes that's the kind of person I am. That's why I do some of the rank, vile things I do and say some of the rank, vile things I say and act like some of the rank, vile ways I act. And men, look, I'm one of you. We snap at our wives. We get irritated with them. They don't do what we thought they should have done. They operate this way. They operate that way. We don't understand them. They're confusing and perplexing at times. And the reality is, is that until we become men who really understand 
that it's that kind of person that Jesus came to die for. One like me. A man not always patient, not always long-suffering, not always short-tempered. That I will ever begin to be able to love a woman. Because I will never be able to really see that I'm not doing this for her. I'm doing this for Jesus. Because you begin to see how gloriously great your salvation is. You begin to realize what a wretch Christ died for in yourself. And your delight is to love that woman. Not because of what she can bring you. But because of what Christ has already given you. Himself. This is when you begin to understand how the prostitute could come in there with that expensive bottle of nard, crack it open, and dump it all over Jesus. You see, while that's an analogy of a woman, men, this is what you do. When you really start to see how much you've been loved, how great your forgiveness is, it's nothing to take everything you have and dump it all over your wife and say, Jesus, this is how much I love you. Look at how I love Jane. Because in some ways, the reality is is that to the degree that I love Jane tells you a whole lot about how much I really love Jesus and how much I really get what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 25 through 27. In conclusion then, like I said, this is exactly what God did to the nation of Israel. This is exactly what God did to humanity in sending His Son, Jesus. What we need to then see is, is this. We need to live in a way that says, do you realize the infinite value that Christ has placed on me as a man? And then you need to show that infinite value to your wife for whom Christ died also. May God make it so in the midst of this church and in this valley and all the churches that preach the gospel. Amen.